0: Robert Gurr is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland, and he's spent a lifetime analysing the causes and consequences of organised political protest, rebellion and terrorism. And over the decades he's tried to find answers to questions like why some people resort to violence to get what they want, and is violence ever effective? This book is a detailed summary of his work on this topic, and it's my great pleasure to be able to chat to him from his home in Las Vegas about it. My name's Craig Barfoot, and you're listening to Pod Academy. Ted, thanks a lot for taking the time to have a conversation with me today.
1: You're quite welcome, Craig.
0: What methods of rebellion have been more successful? A violent or non-violent rebellion?
1: Yeah, I've done some fairly comprehensive data collection, comparison about outcomes. Revolutions have been unusually unsuccessful, or let me simply rephrase that, revolutions, revolutionary movements rarely succeed. I've also looked at the outcomes of terrorist movements in Western societies, and they have been disastrous. Uh, almost inevitably disastrous for the people who organize them. Uh, protest movements are much more likely to be successful. Successful in the sense that uh, protesters may get 20 cents on the dollar of what they want. But in democratic and semi-democratic societies, they are the more successful, more effective strategy.
0: Why, why do you think that is?
1: It has to do with the principles of democratic governance. That is it's how democratic leaders think they're obliged to respond to public input pressures of various kinds. Um, on the other hand, if the protesters go too far into violence, if it turns into you know rioting, uh, then that triggers a kind of reaction um, and a disinclination by democratic leaders to respond favorably. And ultimately, if protesters can demonstrate that they've got a large popular following or a lot of sympathetic people in society, our leaders are elected. They depend eventually on validation at the ballot box. So better to make some concessions uh, than to try to eliminate the protesters
0: so that's focusing on democratic countries. What happens when we, we move over into to more of the non-democratic countries or countries that do rule with a bit of force? Is, an, is non-violent resistance then always appropriate, or are there times when violence is more necessary?
1: Well, it's certainly the case that uh, there are some political activists, call them rebels, who are unwilling to compromise and some kinds of leaders who also are unwilling to compromise. So in those circumstances, you know, violence, uh, organizing a guerrilla movement, for example, or, you know, urban street warfare may be unlikely, you're relatively unlikely to have any payoffs. (laughs) It may be the only way to go if you're going to persist in rebellion. Uh, it's also the case, of course, that uh, leaders of uh, autocracies uh, themselves may prefer to make some gestures of accommodation rather than to invest in the expense of suppressing an opposition movement. Depends on their situation. Depends on their own, you know, values and objectives.
0: Can you maybe just walk me through, um, I guess, the process? I mean, is it that disgruntled groups traditionally start out as peaceful protests and then slowly graduate to a more violent forms if they feel that the protests aren't working?
1: Yeah, that's a very common sequence of events in the late 20th, early 20th, early 21st century. I had done some calculations about how long it takes on average you know, for movements to move from protest uh, to open violence, and depending on the continent and the circumstances, you know, anywhere from, you know, seven to 20 years.
0: When you say that seven to 20 years, you mean from the first initial kind of meeting of of we're not happy about something?
1: Right, from the first time that uh, we see in our evidence, and I, I don't do field work on this subject, I do it all by virtue of what's on the internet or in other kinds of sources. Mm-hmm. But for the first time that we see records of a organization being established in pursuit of a particular, as you say, regional autonomy you know, for <laughs> parts of Senegal or regional autonomy in one of the European countries, uh, they, they almost always start out nonviolently, And some years of protest pass. Some years of political activism of various kinds uh, before significant members of the movement decide that they're not getting where they want to go, not seeing any significant uh, improvement or not enough, uh, and decide that some more dramatic action is needed. Um, and it don't take the seven to 10 years as a absolute rule. It's a lot of variability, but on average, you know, that's that's the range. Numbers of years of nonviolent protest before the first bombs get thrown.
0: And do you, during this time, see more steps in this evolution, or is it a, is it suddenly from nonviolent to violent?
1: Oh, it's usually uh, usually a series of steps. Depends very much on the movement itself and its and its leaders, and on the kind of responses they're getting from public authorities. Um, If there is no response, no significant response of any kind, it is not taken seriously, then the process uh, goes more quickly. Um, And of course, what you have here for officials, uh, public officials, uh, is a pretty substantial length of time when they can devise strategies for deflecting um, the movement.
0: What types of rebellions are actually more common? Violent rebellions or non-violent rebellions?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I've done some in-depth research on autonomy movements or separatist movements. You know, it was widely believed in the aftermath of the Cold War that the world was going to break up into, I've heard estimates as high as a thousand mini-states because there were so many movements that were, aimed at the objective of gaining um, outright independence or more regional control of resources and so forth of the literally hundreds of those kinds of movements maybe 20 percent that's that's a guesstimate led to some form of violence often in the form of terrorism um, bombings and maybe 10% Ten percent of the total went to war, um, anywhere from uh, local guerrilla wars to you know full-scale wars that looked like international wars, like between North and South Sudan. You know that was went through two phases of more than twenty years of very deadly conflict. But that's an extreme case.
0: And so the other seventy percent were then non-violent in nature.
1: Uh, if not non-violent, then very minimal violence.
0: Of this sort of 70% non-violent, how many of them would you say achieved their objectives?
1: Now, that's interesting. In the before the end of the Cold War, uh, the success ratio was relatively low. One of the let's say maybe 20% got something out of it. In a few cases, they got total independence um but most of the but there's a shift a real sea shift in the decade after the end of the Cold War in the decade of the 1990s uh, quite a bit more often the separatists the autonomous movements are uh, got accommodations often you know substantial regional autonomy in a few cases like uh, East Timor um, and Slovenia they became totally independent. But for the most part, uh, the most likely outcome, certainly in uh, Eurasia, was the achievement of significant regional autonomy.
0: What was it that happened in the 90s that, that changed?
1: I think it was less likely, much less likely, for the um, for the superpowers you know, to engage in supporting uh, different sides, competing sides, these conflicts. That's one thing. The other thing is that the international community, insofar as it's a community, but through the UN and through regional organizations, are much more likely uh, to engage politically diplomatically, sometimes with peacekeeping forces, in these conflicts with the objective of uh, cooling them down.
0: Looking at the terrorist tactics and uh, them, uh, you said in your book, basically across the board that terrorist tactics have never really worked. Why do so many groups then consistently attempt to use these tactics?
1: Now, where I said that terrorist tactics have uh, almost uniformly failed where it was in Western democracies. Uh, there are other parts of the world where they do work more effectively. Um, there's a research team at the University of Chicago that has done a long-term study about suicide bombers. And that means suicide bombers, mainly in the Islamic world, but also the use of suicide bombers in Sri Lanka, you know, by Mm. Tamils. And their conclusion is that actually that particular form of terrorism has been relatively effective. It has had a number of successes in minimizing foreign military presence. Um, the United States withdrew its Marines from uh, from Lebanon um, during the Reagan administration after the Marine barracks were bombed. But, you know, both ideologically and rationally, the activists who are considering using suicide bombing as a tactic uh, have concluded that it has a chance of success. So they keep using it. Um, you know, with the expectation that eventually it's going to give them a significant advantage. So, you know, it's it's not all well, it's a waste for the people who give up their lives to it, but by the larger political strategy of the of the leaders, um, it can work. So I think there is, especially in situations where there seem to be no feasible alternatives. Um, strategies of resistance, you know, terrorism becomes attractive, you know, partly as you know, the last resort and partly because of the belief, to some degree justified, uh, that there are cases where it has worked.
0: Is, uh, is there a sort of a standard government response, a sort of, I guess, typical playbook uh, when governments are threatened by protest and rebellion?
1: is there a playbook there are habits of response that is both russia and syria among other countries don't have a heritage a tradition of responding coercively to rebels at the same time they have the instruments the secret police specially designed, designated militias, uh, whose purpose it is to respond to and maintain control in situations of protest and rebellion. So, I think some regimes just get locked into a particular strategy of response and it may very well be, depending on the regime, a violent response. Uh, democracies have a different um, set of strategies to rely on. And I'm not saying we are uh, we don't use more than occasional force um, against rebels, especially, whom, whom we regard as threatening. Um, but there are repertoires, call it that, there are repertoires of government response, just as there are repertoires of protest and rebellion.
0: When when scarcity and, and economic decline start affecting societies, which you speak about a bit, is there a is there a kind of a a recognisable tipping point where this inequality leads to a violent reaction?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure there's a tipping point, but there are processes. Um, scarcity usually means greater inequalities because the people who have more. Uh, use whatever means are at their hands, uh, political and otherwise, to maintain their advantages, so inequalities increase. And, you know, resentment about inequalities is one of the key drivers of a lot of protest and rebellion. So that's one consequence. Another is that in the in the process of protecting their advantages, uh, they're not going to be particularly keen to preserve uh, democratic norms and practices they're probably more willing to sacrifice some of those you know in the in protection of their self-interest so if those two arguments are correct you know theoretical reasons and some examples uh that means you get an increased likelihood of conflict overall and uh, a lot of pressure that may lead to deconstruction of democratic societies and they you know, shift toward autocracy. Now I made that argument 30 years ago uh, based on observations of what was happening in response to the oil prices and a lot of talk at that time about um, increased global scarcity. Many of the same arguments can be made about the future effects of global warming. Um, Especially the you know the downstream scenarios about what global warming is going to lead to, and I'd like to see somebody pick up the arguments I made in the past and apply them specifically uh, to what analysts are saying the likely consequences of global global warming are.
0: Can you quickly go into a little bit more detail, what those arguments were.
1: Okay, one of the responses to scarcity is increasing resentment at inequalities because more advantaged people groups in society, we see this in the United States, are better able to use political means to protect and increase their advantages, you know, which increases inequalities, which increases resentment about inequalities. Now, if we're living in a world in which um, everything is expanding, um that is in which resources uh, are expanding which there's uh, ever more abundance then that takes some of the sting out of it because people can believe people who are disadvantaged uh that eventually they will take they will be able to uh get some of their own back they will be able to improve their position if it becomes perceived that there's a finite limit that uh, there's nowhere there's no likelihood of increased uh, prosperity. If we're stuck at a particular level of productivity, things are going in reverse. Um, then it's very difficult to, difficult to convince people that they will get pie in the sky uh, in 20 or 30 years and they're increasingly likely to be susceptible to membership joining uh, protest movements. And of course, it it can escalate from there, depending on the responses they meet. And what I'm suggesting is that, if you want to be crude about it, the rich don't want to give up much of what they've got. Um, they would prefer to keep what they have. Uh, the anti-tax movement in the United States, which we are all together too familiar with, and uh, is an example and resistance to various kinds of regulation. All part of efforts of self-interested groups, powerful groups, advantage groups that want to maintain, want to keep their advantages.
0: I did focus on your book and I chose your book and wanted to, to was really interested in reading it and, and uh, speaking to you about it. I guess because of these two things, one, the environment and it's clearly uh, coming up as a problem and the second is is uh, i guess what oxfam released just the other week is that 1% of the population now owns approximately just less than 50% of the wealth and i'm that's continuing so i'm i'm guessing in the future 1% will own 60% and then 1% will own 70% and that can't continue without something snapping somewhere exactly
1: and i think and i was suggesting that as long as there is Continued economic expansion, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why our governments are so preoccupied uh, with promoting economic growth. Then uh, most people will accept the inequalities, thinking that uh, you know they too, uh, somewhere down the road, will be able to participate more, gain a bigger share of those uh, proceeds of those of oh, that wealth. Um, but if it becomes apparent and I think the consequences of global warming are an example of something that will become increasingly obvious. If it becomes apparent that uh, continued progress is not likely, that's when the the perceptions of inequality will turn into resentment and political movements aimed against it, aimed against the super-advantaged.
0: One of the positive takeaways from your book is that the the trend of political violence is down has this been a steady decrease over the past decades
1: well if you were looking at the issue from the point of view of beirut if you were living in beirut instead of berlin you would probably say that's nonsense but if you look overall and here i'm relying partly on my own comparative studies of civil wars and partly on Monty Marshall's compilation of data on casualties, there is an irregular but definite long-term, say long-term, a 30-year trend toward decreasing decreasing political violence. Um, whether it will continue? Well, it depends on what you think the dynamics are driving it. I think we've gotten, we collectively, the uh, the countries and international organizations that are concerned about maintaining order have got enough of a handle on conflict resolution techniques that they can dampen, you know, a lot of conflicts before they reach uh, <clears throat> or reach the level of what's happened in eastern Syria and western Iraq.
0: Finally, Ted, do you? Perhaps have a comment just about the the militarization of the U.S. police force that's going on at the moment. Oh, boy.
1: Hmm. Uh, I think it's somewhere between useless and stupid. Um, Unnecessary. Um, The advantages of it are more than offset by the public uh, perception that the police are being militarized. On the other hand, the Defense Department, the U.S. Defense Department, has a lot of surplus equipment they'd like to get rid of. And there are police officers, police departments, uh, who uh, like the idea of being able to drive around and retread armored vehicles.
0: Okay, so you, you don't think that this, this militarization of the, of the police is a sort of a deliberate tactic in terms of a response to maybe heightened uh, dissatisfaction in the community?
1: Uh, It may be in a few communities, but uh, it's very hard to generalize about something like that across the country. I don't think so. I I don't think there's any generalized concern. I think it's uh, police department, police chiefs' egos, you know, about building up their capacity uh, against threats as yet unknown.
0: Ted, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Uh, May I say, Craig,
1: that you've given a very careful thinking to what I've got in there, and I much appreciate that.
0: Ted, you're welcome. It was a fascinating book. Ted Robert Gurr is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. He's the author of quite a number of books, and he was good enough to chat to me between two morning coffees from his home in Las Vegas. And of course, thanks for taking the time out to listen to this conversation. I hope you really enjoyed it. Ciao.